someone asks you, can you, will you, won't you, would you, like, yes, there's so many, you know, our brain is an amazing piece of hardware. There's so many things firing in our brain, so many, so many scenarios, so many questions, so many problems, so many tensions, so many, you know, issues working through. But deep at the back of one of the core ones that actually is so powerful that it directs our life is, what do I get out of this? What's in it? For me. And again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing necessarily. That's just a thing thing. It just is, it is what it is. We are human beings and we like to put ourselves first and inherently uh, we're selfish. And, 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 and the proof of that for me was uh, now having four kids. The one thing you never have to teach your kid is to be greedy. Ever notice that? Like it's in them already. Like they know what it is to steal, kill, and destroy. Like they, will, they will bite and they will kick and they will throw and they will chew and they will scream and they will tantrum and they will, they'll do, they, they just have all these inbuilt weapons to get their way. It's like the default mode of every child is inherent selfishness. We as parents have to help them work that out as much as possible because things like generosity, hello everybody, things like giving without strings attached, things like maybe there's nothing in it for you other than the joy of watching that thing leave your hand. Like we have to, we have to train and work and prepare and lead our kids into those kind of behaviors. But this, what's in it for me is really hardwired into us. One of the things that makes parenting so hard in this regard is that parenting requires us to forfeit the me so we don't forsake the we. Parenting requires us, and so does marriage, so does every relationship in a sense, wherever you're committed to somewhere, be in friendship or work or whatever, like we're, we're constantly different levels, uh, stretched, challenged, uh, pushed uh, into this, 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 this battle of how much of me do I give away for the we to exist? And how much of me should I hold back so there's a me left if the we breaks down? Some of you have been through trauma or, or breakups or perhaps you've been through divorce. You know what I'm talking about. It's like, it's like when you've been once bitten, as the expression goes, you're twice shy. It's like if I give too much of me away for the, for the sake of the we, then what will be left of me if the we no longer exists? But all the time in life, as parents, all the time in life and marriage, we're constantly wrestling with how much of me do I give up for the sake of the we. Many of us feel this tension of growing up in settings where what was modeled to us in this regard was unhealthy and unhelpful. So many of us, our, our framework, our perspective, uh, maybe like me, you grew up in a home that wasn't shaped by God's word, godly values, the presence of God, or any of those things, uh, and if, like me, you grew up in that home, then perhaps there was a lot of unhealth, a lot of unhelpful memories, unhelpful lessons, 
unhelpful patterns. I didn't realize unhealthy I was until I got around healthy. You know what I'm talking about? It's like one, one author said years ago, you don't realize how dysfunctional you actually are until you get around people who aren't dysfunctional. I remember meeting my wife and going, to, going home to meet her family and her parents and stuff and, and just, just watching them live their life. And I was thinking, you know, this is so strange. Like, they're just simple things. I remember one time I came home and, and Lud's mom, who's a great cook, by the way, she's here in the front row, Hosanni, amazing. You should ask her for dinner. She's fantastic. And, uh, and I remember one time, like, were, she made dinner and she, she took a plate of food and she put it in the microwave. And I was like, what are you doing with that food? And she's like, oh, like Lud's brother, Ariel, he's not here, I'm gonna save for later. I said, if you ain't here, you don't eat, son. Like, we don't know there's gonna be food tomorrow. We gotta, we gotta hustle, we gotta eat this food now. I couldn't believe someone would put food aside for someone who wasn't there. Now, here's the crazy thing. I thought that was normal. I thought we all did that, didn't we? No, apparently what I thought was my normality was actually my dysfunction. And oftentimes we don't realize how dysfunctional we actually are until we get around health, until we get around helpful examples. And so much of my adult life, I mean, myself and my wife are about to celebrate our 18th wedding anniversary. Everybody come on this week. <laughs> Round of applause to her because she does all the heavy lifting. And our oldest son, Joshua, turns 16 tomorrow, so you can do the math, it's right. And, uh, and what's so interesting is I'm still learning things about myself, my past. I'm still confronted with things in me that are unhealthy and unhelpful. And when I try to tug that rope and see where it leads, it leads back to something in my childhood, something that was modeled, something that was done, something that was seen, something that was said, that somehow has a root in my heart. And what happens is, is if we don't have help, if we don't have grace, if we don't have the love of God, if we don't have a community of friends like we have in our churches to help us through life, what happens is, is these things end up hurting us, harming us, and causing us to make decisions that affect the rest of our lives. For example, many of you watching right now, uh, as you reflect on the pain and on the brokenness of the past, you have vowed to yourself, didn't you? You made vows. You said things like, I will never be like. I will never do what he or she. I will never. Or maybe you've even said, I'm never going to have kids because I've, I've come from such an unhealthy, dysfunctional unhelpful environment where I've seen marriage done bad, I've seen parenting done bad, I've seen abuse and mistrust and hurt. You mean you're just so convinced that the whole thing is, is pointless or dangerous? You, you actually have vowed to yourself that you yourself would never put yourself in a place where you're on the receiving or giving end of such things ever again. And that is so sad. Because what I've learned in my own journey of pain and God's restoration, so just because someone did something bad doesn't mean People or all people are bad or all relationships are bad. Just because I don't have the best story of growing up and there's a lot of hurt and dysfunction doesn't mean that I can't do something different in my generation, my family, just because maybe you've experienced the pain of your parents going through a divorce or betrayal or, or manipulation or pain doesn't mean that you can't in your lifetime change it for the next generation. Now on the surface, when we meet people like this who vow, I'm never going to have a family, I'm never going to you know, uh, be married, I'm never going to... And the service oftentimes it looks like selfishness and sometimes there's a small proportion of people that are just 
They never got over the inherently selfish part of their childhood. In fact, because they were so dysfunctional, what happened was, was rather than learning the lesson of generosity is better and being in community is better, they actually reinforced the idea that I am in this by myself and it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and it's a very sad way to live your life. However, I think most people, what motivates these, these kind of decisions, these, these, these directions, is actually fear. Fear, they're afraid. I understand why, because I was afraid. It's like, what happens if? You know, I mean, one of the things that, that, that uh, I had to battle many times, especially when, 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 uh, when I, in the first few years of having our first child, was how much of my dad is in me? And what's so bizarre is, no matter how much, no matter how much you try not to be like your parent, they're in you. Genetically, soulfully, they're just in there somewhere. And sometimes you say something, do something, you go, oh my gosh, like I have become my father. And hopefully in a lot of times, hopefully that's a good thing. And I'm glad not to say that there's many parts of my dad's character in life that I can look up to and, and see as, and hold on to as a good example. But there's many negative things as well. I get it. Sometimes we're afraid of what happens if I become that person? What happens if I end up in the same place? What happens if I end up in a worse place than my parents? Go back to the question. The fear is if I forfeit me, then I'll forsake the me. Like if, if I'm prepared to open my heart, if I'm prepared to, to enter into a commitment, if I'm prepared to, to give up something of me, then perhaps that will be taken advantage of and me will be forsaken. Which brings us back to the question, what is at the center of your life? Because if, if, if so much of what's driving your direction and your decision-making is fear, then what are you anchored to that causes you to be so afraid? And if you're someone that is married or, or, uh, and maybe has kids, like what is it for your kids and for your family, then let me tell you something. Put your kids ahead of your spouse. So many times, it's, it's, it's just, especially our first children, it's so easy to make our children the priority of everything that we forget that the number one essential that kids need is a healthy marriage. And that doesn't change when kids come. When kids come along, that is, it's even more reinforced but you have to prioritize each other. You have to fight for, we're very good at fighting with each other. That's natural, that's easy. But fighting for each other is something that requires effort and diligence and commitment. And kids, by nature of being people, and you know, children don't understand boundaries or value or time. They don't know how much something costs. They don't know how long it took to get. They don't understand your calendar. And they don't really care because they're children. And there's a part of where there's some healthy challenges there, but at the same time, if we, allowed our, if we allow our children to, to fill every single space in our life to the point where we as a couple are pushed apart, then what we're doing is robbing our kids from having a healthy legacy that they too one day would share in their own marriage. So the question is, what's at the center? What's at the center of, that, of those circles? And my question is, what if the love of God was at the center of your family. What would it look like for you, for me, for us? Again, even if you're a single person, even if you're in college, what would it look like if God's love was right in the center, put up there, right in the center of your life? What would it look like if, if, if in the tension of me and the person I'm committed to and the kids we permit, like what happens if, if the thing that, the true north, the center, the anchor, the thing that holds us together isn't success or money or wealth or position or, you know, standards or showing off, whatever it is that drives behavior. It's like, hey, we, we have this incredible gift of the love of God and 
Oftentimes when our marriage is breaking down, the thing that saves our marriage isn't that we're perfect, brilliant human beings, it's that we both turn to the love of God. When we're struggling as parents, we turn to the love of God. As our kids grow up and become adults and they too work through the questions of life, they too can turn to love of God. What would it look like today if the center of your whole life and family wasn't stuff or expectation that you have or your parents had or culture has, but what if it was the love of God? So the question is, what help then does God give us to manage the tension of me for the sake of the we? How do we have a healthy me where I can be an individual, be complete, be whole, be, be healthy, but also build and participate in, in something, whether it's a business, whether it's a team, whether it's a marriage, a family, whether it's a church? How do I, how do I maintain me? but also build a very healthy and happy weed. To help us answer that question, we're going to turn to God's Word. We're going to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 13. And we're going to look at a few verses, verses 12 to verse 17. John's Gospel is very interesting. If you don't know this, maybe you're new to church or you're not a Jesus follower, there's four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, we know that Matthew and uh, John personally knew Jesus. They were actually followers, disciples. They were witches. So what, what they wrote down essentially was their own eyewitness account of what they saw and experienced while Jesus was on the earth. Whereas Mark and Luke did not personally know Jesus. Uh, Luke was a historian and Mark were told, or we believe, scholars believe, wrote down Peter's eyewitness account, who of course was a follower of Jesus. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they're very similar in content. They give a synopsis of Jesus' life from beginning to uh, resurrection. John's gospel is a little bit different because John's gospel, in the first like 12 chapters, John covers the three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry. He doesn't really pay much attention to his childhood or mention other things like Luke or Matthew. He just jumps straight in with Jesus' ministry. And then from chapters 12 to the first half of 18 is one evening, the evening of the Last Supper, the evening of the Passover. And then from chapter half to 18 on is basically his death and resurrection. So John spends a lot of time from chapters 12 to 18 focusing on one evening, the last evening. Why? Because if you ever have lost a loved one, tragically, you know that sometimes people's last moments are their most powerful. And sometimes the most impactful things that need to be said and are said are said in final or closing moments. It's often like when you're hanging out with someone and think you raise time's up, you gotta go. We just some some of the human nature that we just we get we get the important stuff out when we realize time is closing in. So John focuses in on the importance, the significance, the relevance, the power of what Jesus said to his closest followers on the evening of the Passover. And in chapter 13, something bizarre happens. We'll pick up in verse 12, where it says this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. This is very strange. Imagine being in McDonald's later on or in some restaurant with your family and then, you know, Pastor Becca shows up in the dock or Pastor Sam in Navin and just starts washing your feet. Just shows up with a basin of water, unties your shoelaces, takes off your shoe, takes off your sock and just like in the middle of the dinner, just starts, you know, just casually washing your feet. 
I mean, if you're like me, you'd be thinking, that is the sign I needed to know. This place is weird. Like, I'm out of here. Like, you don't just randomly wash people's feet. Even those of you who are married, I mean, how many of you really like each other? You may love the person, but how many can honestly say before God, I love their feet? I mean, and yeah, when you when have kids, your baby's feet are cute, but when they become a hairy teenager... Like, I, there's an argument to be made here. There's nothing beautiful about feet other than they're attached to a person that we love and care for. But Jesus is doing this because he wants to leave them in these last moments. Remember, what a very powerful image of how he leads us to love each other. There's a famous painting by Dirk von Brabant from 1616 of this moment. And I love it because obviously... This, this painter wasn't there, but he tries to capture the emotion. And one of the things he captures better, because you look at like, like Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper and all these, it's like everyone's at the table and, you know, everyone's like, Leonardo da Vinci was almost like someone took a selfie because they're all facing the paint, it's weird. And, and it's like, it looks so, so pleasant, but actually, how many ever had family dinners? You know what I'm saying? Like, people don't sit pleasantly in knife and fork and yes, father, and oh yes, and how are you, Toby? And oh, Jeannie Mac, it's wonderful, Bartholomew. It's like, usually there's stress, there's chaos, there's someone's not doing something right, someone's spilling something, someone's not chewing something, someone's, you know, trying to eat cake before me. Like, you know, it's just normal family dinners are crazy. I love how this painter captured the chaos of Jesus and his ragtag band of followers in the last night. They don't realize the last night. Jesus knows what's happening. And as they're arguing, and I'm going to show you what they're arguing over, because most people don't realize this. As they're, go back. As they were arguing, uh, uh, you know, with each other, it's almost like Jesus just casually gets up in the middle of dinner and starts washing their feet. Now, here's some context. Uh, even though foot washing for us is a very strange thing because normally you do that in the shower or bath by yourself, with yourself, for yourself, that's good advice. Um, in first century culture, and for most of human history, especially in arid, dry places, and maybe in certain parts of the world today, it still happens, people would travel on foot and they would wear sandals. And so when you come into someone's house, oftentimes like we do in some of our cultures where we take off your shoes as a sign of respect for someone's house, in this culture, your shoes were literally, your feet, sorry, were your shoes, and they were covered in the dirt and all the you know, stuff that you'd encounter on the road. And so just like in today's culture, it's a good thing to wash your hands before dinner. In this culture, you would wash your hands and your feet, except it would be the other way around. You'd wash your feet and your hands, and if you don't know why, Ask your mother. And uh, so that's how you do certain things. And what, what, what would normally happen is, is in a household in this culture, there was different levels of servants, okay? So there was people who served and there was like cooks and there was like waiters and different people, depending on the, on the nobility of the house and the econ economics of the house, that would directly determine how many servants there were. But usually the lowest of the low, like the, the very first rung on the ladder of servanthood was you would wash the feet of those that came in. And if a house didn't have the wealth necessary to pay someone to foot wash, then usually the lowest person in the family. So if you were the last child in your family and you lived this time, you would be a foot washing professional. There's a thought for you right now. Thought life was hard, you've no idea. Okay, and that's what would happen if for some reason you were in company, especially official company, and there was no servant and there was no person of the household, then the person in the group who had the least amount of experience, honor, or posture, or place would then 
wash their feet. Now, what's so interesting, maybe you never saw this before if you're a Jesus follower, is everybody sat down to eat, but nobody stood up to wash their feet. Sitting with them in this moment is Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world. But not one of his disciples ever thought, maybe I should go and wash his feet. It's almost like they were so caught up in the, what if I forsake the me for the sake of the we, if I forfeit the me for, for not to forsake the we, then, then what's in it for me? And the reason why we know that they were arguing is because we're going to look at a second in Luke's gospel. When they argued, Jesus acted. Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 24, it says this. Luke recounts, A dispute, the same moment, the night of the Last Supper, a dispute arose among them. So this is Jesus' last night on earth. He's trying to pass on some of the most important things to his disciples. He's about to be crucified for the sin of the world. He's trying to leave them with a legacy that would help them forever. And what are they talking about? They're arguing as to which of them should be considered the greatest. I'm better than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. I can beat you in an arm wrestle. I can beat you in a rhythm tick. I can beat you in Like this argument breaks out as to who is the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, Gentiles are non-Jewish people, so we're technically all Gentiles, as you're a Jew, lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. He's saying it's like in the, in the system of the world, people love to lord over other people, their position, their authority, their fame, their popularity. They love to have a position in people's lives, over people's lives, but, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who at the table, but I is at the one table, but I am among you as the one who serves. Does that completely change that story for you? Can you imagine what it must have felt like to be one of those disciples? And to, as Jesus goes around the middle of the argument and casually starts doing the thing that we should have done for our Lord and Savior, washing our feet, humbling ourselves, modeling to us that greatness in the kingdom of God isn't like the world's greatness, isn't power or stature or status or fame or glory, it's servanthood. I don't know how embarrassing it would have been to realize, oh man, we completely missed it. Here we were arguing over who was the greatest, and here was Jesus, who is the greatest, showing us what greatness looks like. And greatness doesn't look like, you know, posturing and powering and manipulating and coercing and controlling. True power and true authority is found in service. Now he asked the question, didn't he, in the verse, do you understand? Now, he's not asking the question, do you understand my technique for foot, foot washing? Like, I mean, he's not saying like, did you see it was three times to the right, I am trying to the left, and I will start the foot, then go to the heel, then get the toes. Like it wasn't, he's not saying, do you, he's not saying, hey, did you see my, my, my excellent exhibition in foot washing? He's not talking about the practice, he's talking about the significance. Now I've got a funny story about this because 
When I first became a Christian, uh, I was only a Christian in a while, I went to a church, and one night the pastor was teaching on this chapter, and he said, and so we're actually going to wash feet. And we're all going to participate. And I was like, including me? And I could almost hear him saying, yes, you. We're all, going, we're, all, we're all Christians here. We're all going to show each other the love of God because we have the love of God. And the only reason why you wouldn't wash feet is because you weren't a Christian and didn't have the love of God. So we're all going to wash. And these basins come out and water. And it's like, oh my gosh, people wash. And it's funny because there's only one thing worse than you washing someone else's feet. It's someone washing your feet. It's just weird. It's like people's fingers all over you. Like, and so here was I at a church service where I was actively participating in, in casual corporate foot washing. How many know I was never going back to that church again? And just in case you're wondering, there's no foot washing happened today. Not in the physical sense anyway. Because their interpretation was, this was literal. I don't think it's literal. I think, it, I think there's a lesson I'm going to show you in a second. But yeah, so that was an So don't worry, if you're not brand new, first house, we're not going to wash your feet and we're not going to ask you to wash anyone else's feet. But Jesus said in verse 13, he said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Verse 14, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Now again, that's why he asked the question, do you understand? Because he's not now asked them to get up and go, now, you, now I've done it, now you go again. Like, you know, like your kids, you go, look, daddy's going to sweep the floor, and we sweep it. Then we go, now you sweep the floor, but it's not to sweep. It's, it's not that kind of lesson. What he's saying is, is, do you get the heart behind what my hands were doing? See, here's the bottom line. It's hard for us. We can't defer. We can't... We can't defer, we can't allow other people preference in our lives when we're afraid. We can't trust people when we're afraid. We can't, we can't live in intimacy. We can't really love people when we're afraid. Why? Because fear breeds insecurity. And insecurity begets control. And one of the most dangerous things that we can do to a spouse, a friend, uh, 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 an employee, uh, another human being, and especially to our kids, is control them. I want to say this is very important. If you're a parent, listen very carefully. Do not try to control your kids. Because if you try to control your kids, they will do everything with, the, with every ounce of their being to be uncontrollable. As parents, we're called to guide and direct and protect. And in the next two parts of the series, we're going to talk practically about disciplining and words and boundaries. I'm going to give you as much help as I can in the area. But what we should never, ever, ever do is try to control our kids. Because what do you do when someone tries to control you? Well, you rebel. You resist. You kick up. You run, you flee, you get out of there. Why? Because you know in yourself that control is not healthy. So why then would we try to control other people? Plus the fact, uh, maybe your motive is, well, I'm afraid that if I don't control them, something might happen to them. Something will happen to them because they're alive in the world, they're human beings, and we can't safeguard them from every scenario and situation. What we can do is prepare them as best possible to face the trials 
and tribulations of life. But a deeper question we need to ask ourselves is, why do I need to control? What drives your need to control your spouse, to control your kids? Like, what, what is the fear that motivates your control? Maybe the reason why you control your spouse is because you feel like that if they're their true selves, they'll be socially unacceptable to the world, and therefore it'll be an embarrassment to you. So you have to try and manipulate their behavior so they're a good little boy or a good little girl. Maybe you try to control your kids because you live in the fear that if they don't do exactly as you say, they don't follow exactly as you've done, that maybe they'll start being the thing that you escape from, whether it be a parent, another sibling, or their former spouse. You're just convinced that if I don't, if I don't control them this certain way, they will end up in this other place. Maybe it's a fear that if I don't control them, then why do I exist? Maybe it's a fear of place, that if I'm not in control, then what's, what's my point? What's my purpose? If I, if I can't have the final say, if, my, if I can't live my life vicariously through my children, through my control, then perhaps the greater fear is, who am I without my kids? And again, there's so many questions. And, I, and the heart of why I'm prodding and provoking you isn't to uh, condemn you or put you down, it's to help you. Because it's not healthy for you to live your life the way. It's not healthy to raise your kids that way. What you're, the best thing you can give your kids is a healthy you. Best thing to give your kids is a healthy example of what it means to be someone who doesn't have to control. Why? Because you trust in the will and purposes of God. This leads us to our fourth essential. So healthy marriage, honoring relationships, help from heaven, and the fourth essential is this, humility. If we're going to raise people well, whether it be employees, whether it be uh, young leaders, whether it be business people, whether it be entrepreneurs, our kids, if we're going to raise people well, then what I think what the heart of what Jesus is trying to show us is we have to raise people through humility. Now, humility is not putting other people down. We think of humility as, well, oh, he's a quiet man and he's, he keeps to himself and he doesn't have an opinion and he has no convictions and he just kind of... It's like a shadow in the corner. What a humble man. As if, like, as if that's, that's what humility is. No, no. Like, if, if, if humility means I put myself down to lift you up, here's the question. How far can I lift you up if I put myself down? Like, think about it. Like, like what, 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 is, uh, what is it about the, the affirmation of colleagues, of contemporaries? What is it about when in work or on a sports pitch, or if I, when, when people who know you, people who you love, people you respect, when they applaud you and they celebrate you, why is that so powerful? Because you know the value they have in your life. And it's because you hold them in such high regard, when they then lift you up, you feel like, wow, I'm really flying through life. Because the higher you hold them up, and when they hold you up, the higher you go. In the same way, humility is not about putting yourself down, losing your place. Rather, humility is using your place to lift others up. Humility is about recognizing I have influence, or I have, I, have, uh, I, have, I have authority, I have experience, I have a place, I have something to offer. And rather than just, oh no, I have nothing to say, nothing to do. It's like, hey, let me help you. Let me lift you up. Let me, let me use whatever resource I can to lift you up in life. It was the author, thinker, and theologian, John MacArthur, who said, selfless humility, love this quote, is the soul of love. 
In other words, by definition, only humble people can love. Like, yeah, you can have the pop culture, Hollywood kind of love. Like, I love chocolate. I love weekends off. I love my favorite artist. I love my kids and wife. Like, you can have that, like, superficial, feely, I fall in, I fall out. My love goes like my emotions. And we all know that that love is not a love that you want to be linked to for the rest of your life, nor do you want to be raised as a child. Why? Because it's a fickle, superficial, self-centered love. But true love, eternal love, sacrificial love by definition can only come from a person, a place, or a heart that is humble. Because real love lifts others up. Real love prioritizes others. Real love defers, real love yields, real love, real love allows the other person to be the center of the conversation and to be, to be the celebrated hero of a story. Real love doesn't have to step in and say, hang on a second, that's great, but I am the one. It was because of me. It was my influence. My, real love doesn't have to live in the spotlight. Real love acts when everyone else is arguing. Again, perhaps one of the most painful and uh, most practical ways that real love in humility is worked out is when we have to apologize to each other. Now, I want to I I I share something really, really profound with you all. This is so deep. Like, God invented flowers, not for the bees, not for the pollen, not for the honey. God invented flowers because when he created men, he realized these guys are going to screw up so much that I better make a lot of them. I better make lots of shapes and colors because these guys are going to be apologizing for a very, very, very long time. Let me tell you something, man. If you haven't bought your, your, your wife flowers recently, listen to the voice of the Lord. <laughs> Buy your wife flowers, dude, seriously. And you can say sorry, and you can text sorry, but if you want to really express sorry... Buy her a night. I don't mean a 10 euro, like what's left, raggedy bottom of the shelf, super value, seven o'clock on a Sunday. I mean, go top shelf, yeah? Don't even let your eyes drop below, like mid-level. Like, go for the top shelf. Because not only is she worth it, you're wrong. That's fact. That's why God invented flowers. Now, we know it takes humility to apologize. <laughs> But since we're in a parenting series, let's ratch up the tension one more degree. What's more difficult than apologizing? Apologizing to our kids. Now, maybe you come from a culture where this is like as blasphemous as saying Jesus was not the Son of God. But the bottom line is, if we're going to model to our kids the kind of values and the kind of behaviors it takes to be someone worth following in the future, then we have to show them in our action that we are not so proud that we cannot apologize. One of the hardest things to do is when you recognize that you've done something, said something, or didn't do something to hurt your kids, and you have to apologize. And it isn't just apologizing for the things that we've done against them. That's hard enough, right? But it's also apologizing for the things that we have done against others in front of them. Listen carefully. If you want your kids to grow up one day and respect their husband or respect their wife, Model it to them in how you speak to your husband and wife. Because if what they see at home is disrespect, if what they see is, 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 is a lack of honor 
in that primary relationship, then they will grow up to be even worse. They'll be 2.0 of whatever you are. Now, I'm not saying you don't, you don't argue, you don't fight, you don't fail. We all do, including me. What I'm saying is when you mistreat someone else in your home and you apologize to the person you've hurt, that's wonderful. But when you apologize to those who witnessed those you hurt, that's even more powerful. Because what you're saying is, Daddy, Mommy, whoever, we're not beyond the standards that we hold you to as a child. And we recognize that even though we fail and fall short of standards of health and happiness, we're never going to give up. Why? Because true love is humble. And again, I learned this the hard way. My dad is a very imperfect man. He's a great, great man. He now follows Jesus and is a, just does great work helping people. But when I was growing up, he was a very broken man. And I can tell you story after story, but I'll give you one particular story. One day, my brother and I were arguing, kind of like the disciples. And my brother realized that he wasn't going to win the argument, so he did what all second-born children do. Listen carefully. He got nasty, and he bit himself. Ran to my father, crying, and said, Jamie bit me. So I'm thinking, I would never stoop so low. I might hit you in the head, but I'm not going to bite you. You know what I'm saying? It's not my, not my game. And so my father... In, he was busy, he was under pressure, as often we are as dads, reacted in anger, in unfettled anger and frustration, and took it out on me. And it was a very bad moment, and I was very upset physically and emotionally. But a few hours later, after my brother saw how bad the reaction was, he felt bad, and told my dad the truth. And to this day, he hasn't got rattled for it. I think he deserves it. Are you with me? Like, he deserves his comeuppance as well. You know what I'm saying? So I can give his address. No, I'm joking. I love him. Um, and my dad came in, and in the most awkward way that a dad does sometimes, said sorry. Now, listen carefully, because this opens up a whole can of worms with, 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 with home environments and dynamics and so on. Like, abuse is never okay. Ever. In any relationship. And if you're someone right now that's on the receiving end of abuse, come talk to one of those pastors, come talk to the Next Steps team. Like, you should not suffer in silence. You should not suffer alone. But sometimes parents make bad choices. And apologizing or, you know, saying sorry doesn't, doesn't undo what was done. But what it did do for me was it helped me realize that in the in, imperfection and brokenness of my dad was a genuine heart of humility that loved me. And even though... Things got difficult in my life, and when I was 16 years, years old, to leave home because I became a Jesus father kind of stuff, I always knew in my heart that my father loved me. I knew he was imperfect. I knew there was dysfunction. I knew there was a lot of things in me I didn't want to take with me to my kids, but I always knew, despite his fears, he loved me. Fast forward to talk a few, late, few years later, he himself came to faith, gave his life to Jesus, was healed and restored, and now we have a great relationship. But what I'm saying is this, even though we can't maintain a standard of perfection, when we apologize in humility, we give our ki kids the gift of our hearts because they see our love. This is what Jesus meant in verse 15. He said, I have set this example for you that you should do as I have done. Jesus lays down the greatest standard for every human relationship, that love is more than a feeling. Love is value in action because I care, because I love, because I believe, because you are to me, therefore I will act. And one of the most important things that we can do as parents is set an example, not of perfection, because we can't be perfect. 
We know that kids, kids do not do what we say. Kids do what we do. And so if kids do what we do and not what we say, then we shouldn't be so good at what we're saying and we should be more committed to how do I in humility show them love? Kids don't need a perfect example. What kids do need is a humble one. And every single one of us, in every relationship that we're in, we can choose today with God's help, by the power of his Holy Spirit, to become more humble. That's why Jesus said in the second last verse, verse 16, Verily, truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than he who sent In other words, making less of ourselves does not make ourselves less. Just because we choose to prioritize and put our people forward, just because we choose in humility to use our place to lift people, does not mean that we have to lose our place or lose ourselves or lose the me for the sake of the we. It's like the more I have been healed, the more I have been helped, the more I have received grace and mercy from God, the more I can now give that to other people. And because I have been cleansed and restored and redeemed, because I've been healed, because I've been made whole, because of the mercy of God in my life, I don't have to pull people down, but I can lift them up. And as parents, our kids don't want perfection. Because if we were perfect parents, what hope do they have when they become parents? And some of you, you've made your brand of parenting perfection. That's why your kids don't like you. Because they can never make you happy because they'll never achieve your standard of perfection. Our kids don't need perfect parents. They need normal parents who are imperfect, but in their failings, in their falling, in their struggles, there is a deep humility, a real love that is manifest, not just in service and sacrifice, but in taking responsibility and in something as simple. You may not raise this, perhaps one of the greatest legacies you can give your children isn't that you went to work every day and paid the bills and that's all great. Maybe the greatest legacy, the thing your, your kids will talk about one day is, man, when my dad said sorry, wow. When my mother came and told me, I realized I'm pushing too hard because I'm trying to help you, trying to control you to live life better. Man. Like when we, when we own up and apologize and to see that the love in our hearts, one of the greatest legacies we can give our kids is that we don't, we don't become less because we make them more. As we become more, they become even greater. Jesus finishes in verse 17. He says this. He says, now that you know these things, he says, you will be blessed if you do them. Here is the help as we close. God does not bless our intentions. God blesses our actions. God sees our intentions and God might approve or redirect or whatever, but God blesses our actions. And here's the one you know today. God wants to bless you. God wants to bless you as a single person. God wants to bless you as an employer, as an employee, as a leader, as a role model, as an older brother or sister. God wants to bless your marriage and God wants to bless your kids. God wants to, you to bless you. And the word blessing in the original Hebrew language literally means to make happy. God wants you through his, his presence and by, by means of his grace, he wants you to experience true joy. That joy that we mentioned at the beginning in the Mark Twain quote, a joy that needs to be shared, that should be shared, that can only be fully joy when it's shared with other people. But to have that joy and to be people that God blesses, here's Jesus' directive to us. We should love each other, but not in a feeling lovey-dovey kind of way, in a way that lifts each other up. 
And it isn't just for parenting, it's for Christianity. If you're a Jesus follower, this is the Jesus brand of love. That we would love each other and in humility prioritize each other. But especially as parents, if we want to we build healthy families, we want to set our kids up for an extraordinary purpose, then one of the most powerful weapons we have isn't our position, our posture, our title, our place in the world, our experience. One of the greatest weapons, one of the greatest resources, one of the greatest things that we can give their, our kids is an example of humility. And I know there's fears and concerns and what ifs and what, and what, what, what not and the world, da, da, da. but if, if we try to control our kids now, They'll come a, they'll come a, they'll, there will come a day where they'll come of age and they will run as far away from us as possible. But if we can model them that we're with them through thick and thin and in our own, because there's grace in our lives, in our brokenness, there can be grace in theirs. We have a place in their lives to walk with them for the rest of their lives in humility. It's why 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 to 7, appears this in the same way. It's the same Peter who was there that night at the table. If you actually read the full story, he didn't want Jesus to wash his feet because he was so ashamed. And then Jesus kind of talked into it. But in verse 5, Peter says years later, he says, In the same way you are younger, submit to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud. I mean, you want to be in direct opposition to God? Be, be proud. Be prideful. Be full of proud. My pride. But if you want to have the favor of God, it says God shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxiety. Why do you worry? What's your fear? What are you afraid of for your kids? Give it to God because he cares for you. You see, this is why we should all find and follow Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus is Lord of our hearts, when we put Jesus first, when he's the center of everything, when he's our purpose, when our kids are a welcome addition to a marriage and a life that is serving and aligned to God's will and God's plan and God's purposes, then the love of Jesus will be in our homes. 